Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Children found the bones more than once. This was one of those times. They should have known something, of course. They did know. They didn't know. They had no idea it was as bad as that. It was a soft, deadly secret that had settled into the small forest, blanketing the ground, wrapping itself around the rough skin of the trees. The people nearby tended it silently, patting its edges, smoothing it, the metallic taste of it always in their mouths. As soon as they thought they knew it, though, As soon as they believed they could run their hands along its contours in their sleep, they would remember something else, hear something else, something they'd forgotten or perhaps never knew. Then the secret would assume a different shape, a new form, still soft and baleful. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Judith McCormick. Her third novel, The Singing Forest, weaves the story of a low-rung clerk who helps Stalin's thugs torture and murder innocent victims, many of them Jewish, in pre-World War II Belarus, and a modern-day young female Canadian lawyer on the team prosecuting those long-forgotten crimes. Hi, Judith. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So how did you come to write The Singing Forest? Well, my grandfather came from Belarus, um, so I was curious about it. And I stumbled across the story of Kuropati, uh, the small forest where Stalin's secret police killed up to 250,000 people. And uh, I wanted to try and understand the whole thing better. Um, You know, the idea of evil uh, for lack of a better word, um, we all read stories uh, about terrible crimes, genocides, atrocities, and so forth. And I understand that there are a variety of social and political factors that drive these things. But at root, there's something that I find fundamentally inexplicable. So I wanted to try and understand that more. Um, but I also wanted to write a book that people would actually enjoy, that had some beautiful and wry moments Um, that would lift their spirits to some extent. So uh, hence the eccentric uncles, the sardonic aunt, and so on. And then, of course, they took on lives of their own and ran away with the book. Mm. Law is hugely important in the book, the study of law. And it's important to your protagonist, Leah Jarvis. She talks about the law of probabilities and the doctrine of willful blindness, etc., How does the law drive her and where does that come from? How does it come from you? Well, I used to be a lawyer um, and um, uh, I was often wrestling with what a strange beast law is. Um, You know, what a collection of uh, fables and hopes and lies and rumors it all is. So it was natural for me to weave some of that through it. And I, I, I do find the story aspect of law um, you know, uh, entrancing, I guess. 
Mm, she's a wonderful character. Can you say more about the spiders that plague her? Oh, yes. Well, uh, in part, that was because the structure of the book is that the story of the war criminal and the story of this young woman who's trying to bring him to justice are interwoven. And so that means they're, they have alternate chapters, which can be a bit abrupt. Um, you know, you can get very involved in one perspective and then the chapter change and you're whisked into somebody else's brain. And so in part, the stories were a way to build a bridge between the two of them. They're having a kind of um, sort of metaphysical conversation, um, you, you know, between the two of them as well. And that provides a bridge between the two perspectives. But it's also a way of her, um, it's a way to show how she's haunted by these stories. Um, uh, she's nagged by them. And so that's where the spiders come in. Mm. How does missing her father affect Leah's personality, even as a grown woman? Well, I think that um, part of the story is about uh, random losses. Uh, you know, how the haphazardness, the sort of um, uh, the way life can turn on a dime. Um, and so uh, there are a number of losses in there that she's gone through, um, but one of them, of course, is her father. And it probably, I'm not sure that it affects her more than the loss of her mother at an early age, um, but certainly both those losses um, were tremendous, uh, as they would be if you lost parents. Um, but she did end up with this group of um, uh, odd uncles, these three odd uncles, and then, of course, her aunt. Um, and those, uh, you know, they're in their own ways, they're very warm and nurturing. Uh, some of those ways are quite odd, <laughs> um, but, you know, they, they do provide um, uh, purchase for her. They do. Are they based on anyone in particular? Uh, well, there's a little bit of my grandmother in the aunt. Um, and... Uh, the uncles, I think, are, are their own invention. <laughs> okay, okay. What's going on with Leah's boss, Lewis? He's pretty complex. Yes. Um, you know, I've known a lot of criminal lawyers. I, do, I don't really want to um, uh, generalize too much, but certainly some of them uh, are loners uh, the way he is. And... Um, uh, and, and they can be uh, very, um, let's, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this. <laughs> um, they're very much their own people. Um, you know, they're uh, uh, very much self-sufficient uh, and um, very independent. Uh, and they have to be to some extent. Um, you know, criminal lawyers represent unpopular people. Uh, so they probably wouldn't be criminal lawyers if they were looking for a great deal of approval. Uh, so in a way, there there's a little bit of a heroic aspect to it. Um, and in a way, there's a little bit of a kind of psychological aspect to it. So he uh, does, um, you know, um, have those some of those characteristics. Let's, let's discuss a few of the other characters that she works with. Nate, Owen, Isabel. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, Nate is, um, uh, 
to some extent her foil in the book. Um, and um, but also I wanted I wanted her to have uh, you know these good relationships. Um, and uh, and and Nate is is certainly one of them. I wouldn't say he is the deepest person in the world, um, but he's definitely uh, one of the good guys. Um, and uh, so, um, and I had fun with him and to some extent their banter. Um, we had a good time. Oh, and of course, it's more remote. I mean, he's, uh, you know, uh, he's above her. And um, so he's a little more of a peripheral character. But who was the other person you said? Owen and Isabel. Oh, and Isabel, right. So, um, well, again, they're um, characters that um, are interwoven through the story. Um, but they're, um, and certainly Isabel is based on somebody that I, I did know um, and worked with uh, quite a long time ago. Um, the relationship with, with Nate, I, I didn't know where that was going to go. I, I kind of felt bad for her. He wasn't clearly uh, passionate about her just seemed um, like the kind of relationship we warn our daughters to stay away from. <laughs> um, well, he is very cool in the literal sense. Uh, and he's, um, and he's careful. I mean, he's extremely ambitious. And so the dilemma at the end um, where he, he will, uh, I won't say anything, but that he is presented with a dilemma where he has to decide between those ambitions um, and another course of conduct. And as you know, certainly that's very difficult for him. And so you don't know how he decides until the very end. Mm-hmm. The book takes place in both Canada and Belarus. Can you talk about how those, both of those places made their way into the story that you wanted to tell? Well, of course I, I live in Canada. Um, and so that was a, a natural location, but I've been to Belarus. Um, and I was really impressed by it. Uh, you know, there's some uh, beautiful countryside. The um, city of Minsk is uh, surprisingly um, un-Soviet. <laughs> there certainly are marks of Soviet architecture that uh, are, uh, you know, that sort of red brick kind of aesthetic. But there are also some beautiful buildings. It, it was pretty much destroyed during World War II. So there's been a lot of rebuilding. And there's some quite nice architecture. Um, and the people were really interesting. I went to Kurapati, to the forest. Um, it was remarkable. Uh, it was, um, the atmosphere was fascinating. Have they, bar- have they unburied all of those bodies? Have they made their way through and made sure none of them still are no, still there? No, not at all. They're, still, they're all still there. They haven't unburied them. And there's actually a bit of a, a controversy going on because um, uh, the current government isn't allowing people to use various resources to identify who might be there and who isn't. Uh, the current government is very ambivalent about this because um, they are very close to Russia and this was Stalin's secret police. So they have at various times um, either not acknowledged this or if they've acknowledged it, it's been reluctant. Uh, they tried to build a restaurant too close to it. Um, you know, there was an outcry, uh, but they're, you know, they're not um, in support of this being explored at greater, in greater depth. So you are literally, when you're visiting there, 
um, you have to wonder if you're walking over bodies. They do have parts of it roped off where they believe the bodies are. Um, but it's not a very big forest. It's a little small forest. And if there are, in fact, 250,000 bodies, it, it's not clear where they all are. So it's eerie. It's eerie to be there. And it's also a beautiful little forest, green and quiet, you know, shafts of sunlight coming through. And then the idea that, you know, so many people were killed here. And you have to wonder if there's some kind of, I, I don't believe in ghosts, but some kind of, you know, residue of some kind uh, in the atmosphere. Uh, your writing is just beautiful. I want to quote something and ask you about it. I quote, whatever it is that you want to happen, whatever it is you think will happen, this is the distorted universe of law, a garbled reflection of real life. Can you comment on that? Well, I guess that comes from my experiences uh, from being a lawyer. To some extent, you are the interpreter between law the mediator between law and your clients. And your clients' expectations are so um, uh, optimistic, I find. This is where they think that they will get justice. Um, this is uh, where they think that they will be vindicated. Um, and it seems so rare that it does turn out like that, it, you know, in the sense that um, they may well win, their case, but it doesn't provide them with the satisfaction and the vindication they were expecting. Um, or, you know, often it's a sort of mixed outcome. And so in, in part, that's what it is. But uh, the idea that there is this separate world of law, I think, is, is an interesting one, because it's a very, um, it's a very full and very sealed world in a lot of ways. It has an internal logic of its own. Uh, but it's, um, but it's uh, you know, it's such an odd combination of things um, that I think it's often very hard for people to understand. And um, as I say, you're constantly having to address um, their disappointment or their failed hopes. Mm -hmm. Telling Stefan Droz's story helps us understand who we became. Did you want the reader to forgive his behavior because of what he himself endured? No, not at all. Um, I think that uh, uh, the idea was in part for me to try and understand how people do these terrible things, why people do these terrible things. And so I, as a writer, I, I wrote my way into a character to understand that. So a lot of it was trying to understand it, but we do need to understand people like this. And um, you know, he, as another character in the book says, uh, you know, there are many people who have horrible childhoods and don't go on to become, um, you know, involved in mass killings. Um, so it's not something that excuses him, it, but it is a way of understanding him, uh, how he got to that point. So um, part of it was that. Part of it was I wanted to understand his story. You know, like it's not just... Um, a question of how he was shaped, but, uh, you know, what his, what his narrative was. Um, so, um, you know, so it's, uh, uh, it, it was actually very interesting for me to do that. In the end, I'm not sure I did entirely understand how he was able to do that. 
Um, but I, I certainly understood better than I had before I wrote it. As I mentioned, as I told you, your writing is very poetic, winding, powerful. Did it make it easier to talk about the torture and his lack of humanity writing in that way? Well, the torture probably isn't, you know, the most poetic part of the book. Um, and to be honest, writing those scenes was uh, really um, brutal. <laughs> um, I found it really difficult. I, I had researched it very carefully. And so I knew this is what happened. And I wanted to um, present it, um, uh, you know, in, a, in an accurate way. Uh, but I did find it really difficult. And, you know, I must have edited the book many, 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 many times. And I got to the point with, with those affidavits that I would just skip them. Oh, they're good enough. I don't want to read them again um, because they were difficult. And, and again, that's why I tried to include so much in the book that was warm or even a bit humorous or something to balance that out. Um, but uh, they were really difficult to write. And um, as I say, I think they're the, probably the least poetic parts. How long did it take you to write this book? Uh, it was about four years. Okay. Uh, I've already told you that my grandfather escaped from that very area, now known as Belarus. At the time, it was part of the Pale of Settlement in which Jews were permitted to live, and he was from a town near Minsk, in the Minsk Gubernia. That's what it was called. And my grandmother was from the town near uh, the state nearby called Shinivga Gubernia. Anyway, Belarus doesn't come off very well in your novel, so I thought I'd ask if there were any positive stories about bravery in the face of everything. Yes, I mean, I think that um, there are many wonderful parts of Belarus. Um, there is great beauty there, um, as anywhere. There are, you know, wonderful people there, as well as less wonderful people. Um, there are... In, in terms of courage, I think of the fact that is something that's mentioned in the book and that is indeed quite real was that um, outside Kurapati, some of the uh, neighbors um, dug up some of the bodies and posed them by the side of the road, reading newspapers. And so to me, this sort of captures, uh, they, they were trying to draw attention to what was happening there. But it, it, it seems to um, incorporate both a spirit of resistance to what was going on uh, and a certain mischievousness uh, that I associate with uh, some of the Belarusian people. Uh, so, um, you know, there was that kind of resistance. And of course, um, you see now uh, there's been a, a great deal of uh, resistance to the current government. And uh, there have been enormous demonstrations. Uh, and then there has been enormous repression. Uh, you know, people have um, been arrested, have been tortured, uh, have been killed. And so uh, the fact that there is still uh, resistance um, uh, in uh, Belarus, uh, that there are still some demonstrations, although, of course, a lot less, in the face of that kind of um, terror uh, is, I, I think, extremely impressive. I mean, this is a, uh, you know, there are some very fine people here, very courageous people here. 
Leah envies her boss, what she calls his careless Jewishness, because he gets to dip into it from time to time, she says. Why doesn't she feel like she gets to do that also? How, and I want to know, how close to home does this come for you? Well, she's, of course, uh, what we would call half Jewish, uh, colloquially anyway. Um, And so she's a kind of hybrid. And I think that, uh, you know, as a result, she doesn't feel that she's ever Jewish enough um, and uh, for Jews and that she's uh, perhaps a little too Jewish for non-Jews. So I think that is, uh, so I am a hybrid myself. Um, My father wasn't Jewish and my mother was, uh, which of course uh, makes me all Jewish in, in, in accordance with the rules for these things. Um, but there is that feeling of being somehow diluted. And I'm quite interested in the idea of hybrids because I see more and more intermarriage. I mean, in fact, um, the majority, not the majority, but um, you know, almost half of Jews in North America intermarry with non-Jews. So I always thought we were sort of the odd people out, the anomalies. But in fact, uh, you know, hybrids are to some extent the wave of the future for Jews in North America. Uh, so, and, and there's a great deal of other intermarriage going on between uh, various, um, you know, uh, ethnicities, uh, various races as we construct them. And, and so I think hybridness is a, is, a, is a hot issue right now. So I'm very interested in that. Oh, it was a, a, a wonderful book. I just have to say it's so much to talk about, um, but our time is coming to a close. So I'd like to know what you're working on next. Well, I'm working on another book, another novel. Um, I did promise myself that I wasn't going to have any torture, you know, grim scenes in it, that I was going to give myself a little bit of a break there. I'm really just in the brainstorming stage. I have a very chaotic way of working. Um, And so uh, I'm really just tossing around ideas at the moment. Um, but Wait, uh, share. What do you mean? Chaotic way of working. Well, I, I, I understand that there are writers that, you know, outline um, the plot and so forth in advance, do an outline of the book and then write their way through it. Uh, of course, it may, um, you know, change in the course of that. Um, but I haven't been able to do that myself. I wish I was because it's a much more efficient way of writing a book, but I just have to muddle through it. And so uh, ideas come to me uh, and I follow them up or then I abandon them. I follow up other ideas and uh, then I add to them, then I subtract from them. It's a very, um, uh, it's just very chaotic. Uh, And uh, I, you know, I guess everybody writes differently, but I'm in, of course, as the book emerges um, and uh, solidifies, it gets a little less chaotic. I I know a little more of what I'm doing and I start looking at it in in a different way, but I'm at the most chaotic stage right now. Well, enjoy the chaos and I'll look forward to hearing when your new book comes out. Thank you so much for joining me today, Judith. Oh, such a pleasure. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Judith McCormick about her novel, The Singing Forest. Thanks for listening, and may you always be immersed in a juicy novel. Happy reading.